You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Keep Austin weird. Everyone's heard that phrase. Everyone, especially around Texas, you know. And if you've been to Austin, you know. That is a unique city. And it's a great slogan for the city of Austin. And it's lame when you see other cities try and rip it off. Keep Houston awesome or whatever. Keep Houston humid. That will happen, no doubt. (laughs) Austin is so unique and it stands out in, in the city of Texas. And the people love it. They aren't trying to water down their culture or to change things so people in Dallas will like it. Who cares what the people in Dallas like? Nobody. Austin is staying Austin, and I can really appreciate that. Because without realizing it, I think the city of Austin understands an aspect of the gospel better than a lot of Christians do. They understand its weirdness. They, they are already in the vein of understanding the foolishness of the gospel, as 1 Corinthians says, that to follow this crucified Christ and this risen Christ, it is foolishness to the world to believe and to teach and to talk about a man who would be crucified and rise again from the dead. And it is a continual weirdness and foolishness to follow this risen Christ. I mean, all the things Hebrews is addressing right here in verses one through six, they are countercultural, they are weird, and they are bizarro to the outside world. What these verses call for was crazy in the first century, and they sound crazy in the 21st century. And this is really good for us. A lot of people, and it happens in every generation, when the culture doesn't really like Christians or we're not as popular, there are some popular writers and bloggers and speakers, and sadly, even pastors, they try to change different aspects of Christianity to make it more acceptable, to make it more palatable to the world. But when we dilute what the Bible says, we're actually robbing the Bible of the power of what it says. The answer to Christianity becoming relevant in the culture is not to make it relevant, but to keep it strange, to keep it alien. Not to sound like we're old school 1950s people or that we're old school first century people, to make it sound like we are extraterrestrial people, that we live for another kingdom, that we, in fact, are otherworldly. You got to remember, these Christians here in Hebrews, they are tempted to go back to Judaism to leave Christianity behind. Now, that's not our temptation. I'm not worried that anyone here is wondering about going to Judaism. They wanted to go back to Judaism because it was culturally acceptable. They weren't going to be persecuted if they went back to being just Jews. So our temptation isn't Judaism, but ours is to live a kind of Christianity that is culturally acceptable, that doesn't stand opposed to anything in the culture, that won't be like John the Baptist and say to political leaders, hey, you shouldn't do that. Hey, that's not right. Hey, that's not kind. To stand against the wave of the culture and say, that's actually not what marriage is. Let me, let me show you what God says marriage is. See, but real Christianity can't be camouflaged in the culture. Just think about the things we value. They don't line up with the world. For one, our ultimate allegiance and identity isn't in the United States of America and isn't to anyone who ever sits in the Oval Office, but to a king of kings. 
And on top of that, to a crucified and risen Middle Easterner. This is who we worship. And what we affirm and what we describe as being worthy, we say every, this is what Christians believe, that every human being has value made in the image of God. Whether they are white, whether they are black, whether they are refugees, whether they're convicted criminals, whether they're illegal aliens, whether they're housed in a womb or an assisted living center, or they have special needs, Christians affirm and believe that every human life is precious. Rome did not, and neither does our country. We forgive. We love our enemies. We pray for those who hate us. Christianity is foolishness to the world. So that means we are fools. As Paul says, we are fools for Christ's sake. And as Christians, one gloriously odd thing we do is we reject and deny our impulse toward pride and selfishness, and we deny self and love others. This is what this first section is. We deny self and love others. Look at verse verse 1 of chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. Now, the world is all about putting yourself first. Be you. You're number one. But here verse one comes in and says, let brotherly love continue. Love one another. Christians care for each other. And sometimes we say that we should treat each other like family. That's not the best way to say it. Whether we should treat each other because we are family. We aren't like family in Christ. We are family in Christ. And this is one of the unique attributes of the church in the New Testament. You think about just Jesus' first disciples, those 12 guys. You have rough-necked, uneducated fishermen. These are salty guys. And then you've got a guy who actually is a Jew, but he works for the Roman Empire, Matthew. And he's a tax collector. So he's gathering taxes from his own people and giving them to Rome so Rome can continue to rule over them. And then on that same team, you have a guy named Simon the Zealot, who is a Jew who wants to overthrow the Roman Empire. So there you have a guy who works for the IRS, and you have a guy who wants to overthrow the country. And yet together, they're following Christ. They couldn't be on different political spectrums. They couldn't have different worldviews. And yet there they are following Christ together. Why? Because brotherly love. I think the only way we can really let brotherly love continue is if we are all together putting aside our preferences and opinions about everything, about everything, especially politics. That's the only way. And when I think about our church and its uniqueness to this area, to this city, wherever we're at, you think of the early church where they had Jews and Romans living together, serving, that slave and free different languages, different ethnicities, poor, rich. Women in the church were not treated as second class. There was no classes and hierarchy in the local church, but they were all one in Christ. The way they could keep doing that was by laying aside their preferences and opinions, and we must do the same. And our our church, as the Tomball area grows, and now the Grand Parkway is here, and more people and more ethnicities, we are a predominantly white, middle-class church, but we cannot continue that way in the next few years as our, as our community grows. And so I'm half Mexican, I'm half white, so I'm gonna to speak to all my full white brothers and sisters. 
We need to be open to seeing and encouraging and pursuing, seeing other races come into our church, come into our community, loving them, serving them, inviting them. And that may mean, I don't know, we have not talked about this in any regard, but I think in the future, I've heard one kind of theologian, church history guy say before that churches in the next five, 10 years, that if they're not becoming multi-ethnic, they will become irrelevant to the communities because they won't look like the community. They won't resemble anything else in society. And the early church was so powerful because it really spanned all races. And so ours too, that may mean we make some changes in music or we do a few different songs. We do, it may and it will mean that different opinions and preferences are laid aside for the good of seeing others come to know Jesus Christ. If we don't do that and we continue to have self-love and not love for others, the church will dry rot. That's why he tells him here, let brotherly love continue. So they're doing it. He says, keep it up, keep going. And I think by and large at our church, I would say the exact same thing. Our church loves one another well. And this, this isn't the emotion of love that we usually think about in our culture. This is the action of love. They're serving each other, caring for each other. Things our church does so well. I mean, even Stephen Allen um, he said, I'm not going to help you ever again if you say my name in a sermon. He was in the first service, so I got to say, say now he's not here. I told him I'm going to put your picture up next time. <laughs> it was 10 o'clock on a Saturday night, and we noticed there was water leaking. We had a two-story house, and on the first floor, I was in my bathroom. I noticed there was a big water spot. Oh, well, that's not good. I go up and run upstairs, big puddle of water, go into the attic. Our water heater is just spewing water out. And if you know me, you know I'm like super handy kind of guy. And I thought I could t handle this. I thought we're in trouble. So I call Stephen Allen who lives in my neighborhood, lives around the corner. You got to come over, man. I got water going everywhere. I don't know what to do. Bye. And he, vroom, he zooms over. He's got tools, goes in the attic and starts fixing it, repairing it. You know, it's Saturday night, turns it off, fixes it. I come home from church and he's at my house waiting for, waiting for me and he's fixing it. That's brotherly love. That's serving, caring for each other praying for each other. And not just, yeah, I'll pray for you, but actually praying for each other. Checking in, how's that going? I've been praying for you. And speaking the truth in love to each other, even, even when it's hard. Encouraging each other. Listening to each other. I think so much of brotherly love is just listening to each other. And really to love and to listen well will mean we have to sacrifice one of, one of our most valuable commodities of our time. We don't want to let brotherly love continue. It's that we've got to sacrifice our time. We've got to reject our selfishness and our sinful tendencies to hoard our time. So are you letting Christian brotherly family type love continue in the life of those around you here at Redeemer? Are you giving it? Are you welcoming it? If you're new to the church, I, I, you probably haven't experienced this yet, but I do see this happen a lot in our body, and it's amazing. It's so encouraging. And listen, if you only come here on Sunday mornings and you, you come in maybe right when the songs start or you come in during the sermon and you leave early, how are you engaging with other Christians to let brotherly love continue? And I, I, I don't think the writer of Hebrews would say, well, if you do that for five, 10 minutes on Sunday morning, that's good enough too. This is about a life if you're not engaged with the church on some level, whether that's groups or Bible studies or fellowship, how are you letting brotherly love continue? 
I mean, what did our Lord Jesus say? It is more blessed to give than to receive. So let brotherly love continue. Then he goes on, and now he goes from talking about in the church to those outside. Look at verse two. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So hospitality to strangers, that is the normal usage of this word. Because what happens oftentimes in the Bible Belt is we think of hospitality, we think of opening up our homes to one another, having apple pie or some kind of cobbler, having bluebell ice cream and playing a game together. And that's true. There is an element of that. But the first usage of the word in the Bible for hospitality is towards the outsider. How we treat those who aren't in the church. This is about showing kindness and being warm and and welcoming and serving and caring and loving unbelievers. I think hospitality, it really makes feel others like they belong. You think of the people that you know, they're the most hospitable people. They really make you feel like I belong I don't feel like an outsider. They welcome you. I really do feel like mikasa, sukasa. Like it almost feels real. So what he's calling for here is that we would be warm and welcoming to the outsiders. And in the first century, this had a lot to do when people were traveling. They didn't have inns and hotels like we have, where there's a concierge desk and there's security. These places were sketchy. These are places you would not want to go. And people would travel into towns. They would have to sleep in these places if they didn't have family members. And here the early church would step in and say, you are welcome to sleep in in my house for the night. This is a safe place. We won't take advantage of you. We won't abuse you. We won't rob you. Well, that's not really our society today. So what does this mean for us? This means for us, how are we being warm and welcoming? How are we offering a safe environment to unbelievers in our lives? And not just so we can give them a fast food gospel presentation and then feel good about ourselves, but that we're actually caring for them, actually loving them because they are made in the image of God and deserve it. I love that he says the word neglect. Do not neglect hospitality. How are we doing here? How are you doing in your life personally? Are you neglecting hospitality to strangers? Who who could it be in your life? That coworker on the fringe? That new neighbor? I mean, I was convicted reading that this week and going over it, that we just had a a neighbor move in right next door. And the most that we've interacted is just a, hey, how's it going? We're getting the mail. Why? Well, I'm busy too. He's busy. I'm neglecting hospitality, so I, I got to go over there. And sometimes we think, well, if I'm not being rude to people, then I'm doing well. The Bible sets the bar a lot higher and calls us to much more. You can avoid hostility, but that doesn't mean you're being hospitable. We can neglect hospitality in a thousand ways, but just because you're avoiding hostility you can still be neglecting hospitality. Do we offer outsiders a safe place where they can be cared for, where they can be treated with respect? Unlike anywhere else they're experiencing in the world, because we know Christ, because we have been welcomed by King Jesus, 
because his grace has been extended to us by his death and by his resurrection. And now that Christ is alive in us. So now when we are walking around in the world, we are not just doing our own thing. We are now ambassadors for the kingdom of God. And so we show everyone the kind of love that Jesus has. Hospitality has gravity. It it pulls you in. That's why when you see Jesus in the gospels, he's got Thousands of people around him because of his hospitality. He just pulls people in. Selfishness pushes away. It repels. When was the last time you showed hospitality to a non-Christian? Not to be in your home, but this, that value, that way of hospitality. Maybe in your home. Maybe not work. Maybe been a complete stranger, which is what he alludes to. Strangers. He talks about maybe you've entertained angels unawares. He's talking about Lot and Abraham in Genesis. Who will you show hospitality to this week? And not because, oh, okay, I did it, but as a new way of life. How will you not neglect this? You know, it's, it's crazy to think that I just saw this story about this lady who was on the bus, on, on the subway in New York City, and she was pregnant. And she noticed that no one would give up her seat to her on the bus, on the subway. And she thought, okay, if someone will give up their seat, I'm going to have this little confetti cannon in my jacket. I'm going to make it go off and give this person a a trophy. She carried it her whole first pregnancy, never happened. Second pregnancy, there she is again, New York City, subway. Finally, one man says, here, you want to sit here? She takes the confetti gun, boo, and gives the guy a statue. Because it's that uncommon that people would treat each other with kindness. Not so they can, you know, slip the gospel in, but because we know the gospel. Because we do know Christ. And that Christ is alive in us. We should now be the best citizens the universe has ever seen. Because we're citizens of another kingdom. And those values come with us. And if this isn't strange enough, look at verse 3. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated. This word literally means tortured. Some of the same group of people who are being tortured since you also are in the body, since you have a body. So love your fellow Christians, love non-Christians, and don't you dare forget about the Christians in jail. Read their stories. Learn their names. That's why I'm reading this book. They say we are infidels. It's about Christians in Iraq and who, are, who are under persecution from Saddam and now ISIS and their journeys, and reading the stories about these women who are at great cost to themselves. Sometimes they're just going around a place called Nineveh. You've heard of the city of Nineveh. They're hugging these children, orphans, just showing hospitality to them, giving them money when they have nothing, loving these widowed Muslim women, and then seeing these ones who are also in jail because of their faith. Learn their names. He says, act like you are in jail with them, as though in prison with them, because we are. Because we are one body in Christ. And remember those who are tortured for their faith. Because you know what it would be like to be hurt. You've been hurt. You've had scrapes on your knees. You've smashed your fingers. You know what it's like to experience pain in your body. So Remember those who are experiencing pain in their body because of Christ. It's calling them to pray for Christians in jail, to serve them, 
It's calling them to bring them food because they wouldn't eat. Calling them to bring them supplies so they could continue to live. That's why the Apostle Paul, he's writing a lot of the books of the Bible from jail. And he's able to do that because Luke is with him, as he says, and Demas is with me. Are they with him in jail? No, they're visiting him, bringing him food, bringing him clothes. The Bible was able to be really spread about the Roman Empire because people remembered Paul in prison. So when you hear about a Christian in jail, Christian being persecuted, what goes through your heart and mind? Do you just swipe right past it? You get the voice of the martyrs email or something in the mail or whatever, you just, okay, cool, delete it. Or do you stop, read it, and pray, and remember those who are in prison? Don't disconnect from them, because even to disconnect from them is to disconnect from yourself. We must remember to pray for the persecuted church, and we should go to the prisons. So go with Andy. He's going to make the announcement at the end of the service. Did you know I was preaching on this, Andy? No, no. I mean, go. Then the, go with him and other folks at Redeemer to the Kairos prison ministry. There are men there who have given their life to Christ and they need your encouragement. Remember them and your kindness. God has saved them and now they're learning to walk in that new life. And there are others there that God is preparing to hear the gospel, maybe from you. You could accomplish all three of these things in, in this prison ministry. You could let brotherly love continue there in the prisons. You could show hospitality to strangers there in the prisons, and you're remembering those in prison. I mean, it's amazing that this verse is in the Bible because people in prison to the world are forgettable. That's why they're there. Let's remove them out of society. We don't want to acknowledge them. We don't want to see them. They're a danger. Let's just get them away, get them out. High walls, hardly any windows, razor wire, they're gone. Out of sight, out of mind. But they're not out of God's sight. This verse proves it. They're not out of God's mind. God doesn't forget those that the world thinks are forgettable. You see how bizarre Christianity sounds? It's wonderful. Love others. Show love and kindness to outsiders. Love prisoners. And to the world, it really keeps getting weirder. Honor marriage and don't love money. I could not think of anything more un-American than these next few verses. <laughs> Verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all. That word honor means valuable, precious. We don't really have an honor culture in the United States, but we do have a value culture. We value things, we price things, we put worth and, and stickers on things to show value value marriage and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Mar marriage was not honored in the first century and no surprise is not honored in our century. Back then it was normal for men to have multiple families and multiple women. And sadly in our culture, it is normal for people to just view pornography all the time like it's no big deal. And our culture redefines marriage almost every news cycle. It seems people can marry themselves. This is the state of our world now. And then Christianity now steps in and says, we honor marriage. And it's not enough just to say, okay, I'm going to honor it. Let marriage be held in honor among all, all of us, collectively together, honoring marriage, our collective marriages, 
honoring the institution. The way we treat our spouses, honoring what God has called marriage. Even the Apostle Paul, when he's writing the elder qualifications in 1 Timothy, and he says that an elder, a godly man, should be a one-woman man. One-woman man. That's, that's three words in English. It's one word in Greek, and it's a compound word that Paul made up. Did not exist anywhere else in Greek literature because the value did not exist anywhere else in the world. That a man would be committed to one woman. Christianity is making up new values. What we really care about, what we prize, how we live, new ethics are found in the kingdom of God. Honor your marriage as having great value, as being the most valuable human relationship you have, because it is. One of the tragic things is when we just see marriage as kind of an elevated friendship. It is not just an elevated friendship. Don't see it as just this continuum of human relationships. You've got strangers or maybe enemies down the far end. You've got coworkers and you've got that weird uncle. And then you've got like all these other things on this continuum. And then the last one, okay, marriage. Marriage is on another plane altogether of all other human relationships. It's one that the Bible describes as that God, what God has brought together. The covenant of marriage. I don't have a covenant friendship. I haven't taken vows with friends in front of all my other friends. But we do in marriage because it's sacred. Let your kids see a marriage held in honor. Some of you, it's amazing that you are going to, it's incredible. I'm just so proud of so many families in our church that some of you are going to be the first generation of a godly marriage in your entire family. Keep it up. The Lord is with you. And you're setting a new story and a new legacy in that family line. Brothers, treasure your wife. Sisters, treasure your husband. Honor marriage by pursuing a great marriage. Won't be perfect, of course. A perfect marriage isn't a sinless marriage. That's impossible. But an honoring marriage is one where the gospel defines it. Confession, repentance, forgiveness. You know, when someone gets a new car, there's a couple things that happen when someone gets, even a new to them car. They put a lot of pictures up on Facebook, social media, whatever. And then when they're going to go to a parking lot, what do they do? They park far away. They don't want anything getting around. Maybe even take up a couple extra lanes just to make sure no carts hit them. No one else parks close by. Why? They don't want any dings. They don't want any scratches. They wash it constantly. They clean it. They got armor all over that thing. They protect it because they honor their car. They value. So, beloved, honor your marriage. Protect it from dings and scratches. Protect it from temptations. Don't make dumb marriage jokes. Honor your marriage. Don't throw your spouse under the bus. Don't undercut your spouse. When when women are all kind of together at the gym or whatever women are doing, scrapbook clubs or homeschool groups or whatever, I don't know what you ladies are doing all during the week. You're at the park and people start talking bad about their husbands, all these things. I mean, I know, I have a wife. She tells me, I know what happens sometimes when other ladies do get together. She said, you'd be shocked some of the things these ladies say. That doesn't honor your marriage. 
And guys, when you're around other guys at work or at the gym or, and they're, they're talking about other women, talk, don't join in those conversations. Honor your marriage and honor your wife where you can't wait home to be with her. The one, that's one way Christian marriage should be so different from the world is that we honor it. That when things get tough, when things get hard, there's disagreements and there is strife and conflict, we endure till the end. We honor our marriages by enduring till the end. Divorce is commonplace in the world. It should not be in the church. And I know it, it happens. And some, some of you, it's happened out of your control. But what we can do now is forgive, endure, reconcile because of the gospel of grace. If we believe that we have the gospel of reconciliation that has reconciled us to God and now enabling us to reconcile to one another, that must define our marriages. And I love that the Bible says we should enjoy the bedroom with our spouse. He, he talks about her here in verse four, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. So to leave it undefiled would be to have the marriage bed be appropriate the way God has intended Dishonoring this marriage vow and adultery, it's common in the world, but it cannot be common in the church of the risen Christ. I mean, the, the Bible isn't bashful about the marriage bed. Song of Solomon is in the Bible. It's amazing. Proverbs 5 is in the Bible. It's incredible. He wants you to enjoy it, and God invented it. But listen, it can only be enjoyed in marriage between one man and one woman. And we're almost to a point in our culture, it's crazy that I almost feel like I even to say it's one biological man and one biological woman. Anything else is sexual immorality. If it happens before marriage, it's sexual immorality. And if it happens with someone else, another name that's not on your marriage license, it's sexual immorality. The adulteries, beloved, honor your marriage. And know that God judges those who do not. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Those who continue in the way of dishonoring marriage show they don't know God and are receiving the judgment of God. But for those of us, and it's probably 99% of us, either in sins in the heart or in actions, it's going to be 100% of us. We have dishonored marriage in some form or fashion. But by the gospel of grace and the confession of sins, New life is available to us in Jesus Christ. New mercies are available even today for you in your marriage. And if we have dishonored it, if we have defiled the marriage bed, Jesus forgives us of all of those sins and he can make us new. He can make your marriage new. Every sin can be forgiven by Christ and cleansed. And now you can be changed to live by this new life by faith alone in Jesus Christ. This is because following Jesus doesn't just mean we, we say by faith, oh, I want Jesus to save me. It also means Jesus is saving me now and he's changing my life. He's changing my marriage. And also now it gets definitely un-American. He's changing the way of you money. Look at verse five. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content. No way. Be content with what you have. This is totally un-American. This is a bizarro world now. This is what makes America go. Now, money isn't wrong. It's the love of money. It corrodes, it ruins. When you love something, you can never get enough of it. This is like another kind of angle of love. Love is the inability to be bored. 
and you love something, you're, you're just incapable of getting tired of it. And if you love money, it means it's never enough for you. When they asked John D. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? When do, when do you have enough money? What did he say? One more dollar. One of the greatest tycoons of world history. One more dollar. One more dollar. If you love money and if you love what money can buy, it means you'll never be satisfied. This is one way you can know. I mean, we're all incredibly wealthy. On the world standards, we are all rich. But sometimes we're not satisfied. But if you, if, you, if you love money, you'll define your life by it and not Jesus's life. If you love money, you'll find your value in your valuables and not in the gospel of grace. If you love money, you'll find you're never grateful, but constantly unsettled, constantly wanting more. And you'll find yourself impatient, resentful, envious. He says, be satisfied with what you have. Be content with what you have. So whatever you have, this isn't about making rich people feel bad or making poor people you know, feel bad. Whatever you have, some of us have more, some of us have less, but world standards, we all have a lot. God gives you a raise, you shouldn't feel bad. Be content with what you have now. Be content with what you don't have. The house, the cars, whatever. And notice the motivation isn't, here, notice what motivation he doesn't give for us to be satisfied. Look at verse five. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, don't you know how many poor people there are in the world? Somebody says. Don't you know that there's people around the world who are eating dirt? That's not the motivation he gives. He's not trying to make us feel bad for wishing we had more. Rather, what does he tell us? Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So why should we be satisfied? Because we have God. Not because what we have is so great, not because what we have is nice compared to others, but because what we have is of eternal, everlasting value. We have God. We have our good father and he will never leave us. He will never abandon us. He will never forsake us. He will never treat us wrongly. You know why he will never leave us nor forsake us? Because Christ was forsaken for us on the cross. And it will never happen again. And now in the risen Christ, that's why he says at the end of the gospel of Matthew, and I am with you always till the end of the age. Now he is always with us. So is that enough for you? is knowing that you have Christ, that you have the Holy Spirit, that you have the good Father, that you have eternity with God. Is that enough for you? Are, are you listening to the temptations of Satan? Just bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Do you know God? You know, it's, it's not wrong to want to provide for your family. That's a biblical value. It's not wrong to want to have good schooling choices for your kids and be able to have that kind of money to make that happen, whatever that may be for you. Those aren't wrong things. But we all know sometimes there can be a virus in our heart that's hacking away that wants to try to slip in a little bit more. Be satisfied. You have God. I love that he says in verse 6, 
So we can confidently say, if we really do believe that, that you have God, I mean, do you have him? If not, you need to believe in Jesus today. He said, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. No matter what shakes down in life, the Lord is my helper. The money's not coming in. The job fell apart. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. This is the kind of countercultural, against the grain Christianity we need. Lights shining in the darkness. Living this way. Letting brotherly love continue. Showing hospitality to strangers. Remembering those in prison. Honoring our marriages. Not loving money. This is because our lives have been transformed by the crucified and risen Christ. You shouldn't live this way just because, hey, that's what the Bible says we should do. We live this way because we know Jesus. And didn't Jesus live this way? He let brotherly love continue. Even his enemies. He showed hospitality. He remembered those in prison. He honored marriage to his bride, the church. And now he's empowering us. He's enabling us. More than keeping Austin weird, let's keep Christianity weird. And by his power and mercy, we can. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.